Happy New Year, listeners. Welcome to this bonus episode of Star Trek and the Jews. Last February, Chava and I did a virtual live show at the Jewish Museum of Maryland as part of their Jews in Space exhibit, and I'm really happy to be able to share with you an excerpt of that event. So, this is a time of year that a lot of Jewish organizations are asking for money, and to be totally honest, uh, we're all good here. Star Trek and the Jews is a hobby project and a labor of love for us. But I would like to make a pitch for a really incredible organization that we all got a chance to learn about in our previous episode, and that organization is Jaius Toronto. If you were moved by the story that we heard, I hope you'll join me in donating to them at jaiustoronto.org to support their important ongoing work for the welcoming, settlement, and integration of refugees and immigrants. I'd like to suggest that if you've enjoyed our programming over the last year, you donate about $1 for every hour of content that you like, so maybe 10 or 15 bucks. We'll be back with a regular episode in about three weeks. Gemar Chetimatova. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Josh. I'm Kava. And we are so, so excited to be here with you guys. Um, Kava and I uh, host the podcast Star Trek and the Jews. It does exactly what it says on the tin. We use uh, Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. And if you're talking about this, there's kind of a big elephant in the room. It's it's the first thing you think of when uh, you hear Jews in Star Trek. So we're going to go to a video right now and get that right out of the way. So I'm with my father and my grandfather and my brother sitting in the, the bench seats. Women were upstairs. Five or six guys get up on the bima on the stage and they're facing the congregation. They get their talit over their heads and they start this chanting. I think it's called Dukening. And uh, my father said to me, don't look. So everybody's got their, their eyes covered with their hands, or they've got their talit down over their faces, or turned away, turned their back to these guys. And I hear this strange sound coming from them. They're not singers. They were shouters and dissonant. It was all discordant. And they were doing like that kind of wailing, and all discordant, not together, not in unison. And then the leader would shout out, and the rest of them would respond, was chilling. Whoa, something, something major is happening here. So I peeked, and I saw them with their hands stuck out from beneath their talib like this towards the congregation. Wow! Something really got hold of me. I thought this is a. I had no idea what was going on, but the sound of it and the look of it was magical. This is the shape of the letter Shin, Hebrew alphabet Shin, 
very interesting letter in the in the uh, language. It, it's the first letter in the word Shaddai, the first letter in the word Shalom, first letter in the word Shekhinah, which is the name of the feminine aspect of God, who supposedly was created to live amongst humans, the Shekhinah. Why you're not supposed to look came to me much, much later, much later. My wife Susan has a cousin who's a rabbi here in Los Angeles at Temple Israel. And I was telling him this story, and he said the reason you don't look is the, the legend is that during that benediction, uh, the Shekhinah comes into the sanctuary to bless the congregation. And you don't want to see that because it's so powerful, it could, it could really get be seriously injured or it could be fatal. So that's why you protect yourself by hiding your eyes. Don't look. I survived. <laughs> I never dreamed that I would do that someday or be involved in it in some way. But sure enough, one day we're making the Star Trek series, television series. We come to a, a very lovely script called A Mock Time, where my character, Spock, who comes from the Vulcan planet, has to go home to fulfill a marriage betrothal, to be married. And the lady who's going to uh, conduct the service is a, a lady named Tepau, played by a wonderful Viennese, Jewish Viennese actress named Celia Lofty. I'm supposed to meet her when we arrive at the planet. We exchange hellos. It was the first time we're seeing other Balkans, other people of my race. So I was hoping to find some touches that could develop the story of the Balkan sociology, history, whatever, ritual. So I said to the director, I think we should have some special greeting that Balkans do. Because we, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, humans, we, we have these rituals, that we, the things that we do. Um, we shake hands, we, we nod to each other, we bow to each other, we salute each other. What do Balkans do? So I suggested this. He said, okay. And that's how we, we did it as a greeting, a Balkan greeting. Uh, boy, that just took off through the culture. It was amazing. Within days after it was on the air, I was getting it on the street. People doing this to me, waving to me in this Vulcan gesture. That, that's interesting. And it's been that way to this day. It's almost 50 years later, people are still doing it. It just touched the magic chord. Most people to this day still don't know what it's all about. A lot of people do because I've talked about it a lot. I've been asked the question, where did that come from? And I have very readily put out this story. It's, it's, it's sort of a, like, like a secret handshake or something you know, that people enjoy to exchange with each other, as if to say, "I'm, I'm in on it. I, I know this. I know the joke." You know, Star Trek, right? You know, hey, Star Trek. You know, it's great. But people don't realize they're blessing each other with this. <laughs> That's great. Oh. You know who that is? Pow. The only person to ever turn down a seat in the Federation Council. Pow. Officiating at Spock's wedding. He never mentioned that his family was this important. Welcome back. Watched that a thousand times and it would never not make me smile. Yeah. I'm going to pull my slides up on the screen here. So, very quickly, 
about us again. So Chava and I host Star Trek and the Jews. It's a podcast that uh, uses Star Trek to explore Jews and Judaism. We talk about all sorts of things like exploring Jewish ideas, uh, like the evil inclination through Star Trek, looking at Jewish literary and historical references intentionally put in Trek, problematic anti-Semitic tropes in media as they show up in Trek and other places, imagining how uh, Jewish law might apply to the future world of Trek and its technology, thinking about contemporary social issues, Jewish history. There's, there's a lot to do there. <laughs> We also, we sort of look at Star Trek in a Jewish light, seeing Star Trek as like the Michelle, which is like a a story that you would tell your children or in school that has this nimshal behind it that is really the underlying lesson that you want to teach. So often what we do is we look at we look at different Star Trek episodes and treat that as our Michelle. And then we, we sort of discuss what kind of Jewish lessons we would learn from it and in general life lessons because Star Trek loves to do that. And it's worth pointing out for the, for tonight, too, that we're not experts. It's a conversation and we're on a journey. We come from different Star Trek backgrounds and different Jewish backgrounds. And also, you know, we're talking about Nimoy tonight. And I think we're in a position as fans to talk about his body of work. But, you know, I, I want to note that he's a real person with family and and feelings and motivation who, who sadly passed uh, six years ago, actually this this coming weekend, um, the year at site was a few days ago. And, and we certainly don't have expertise on uh, Leonard Nimoy, the person in the same way we can think about, you know, our experiences with his contribution to Star Trek. So how about let me ask you about, about this. <laughs> The so-called Vulcan salute, though, it may mean something different to us, but what it makes you think of. Yeah. So um, as was said before, I grew grew up in a modern Orthodox home. So I I went to Shul a lot. um, And that was a tradition that was performed uh, exactly as Leonard described it. The priests or the the people descended from the Kohanim, um, from the priests, go up to the top and the front of the congregation and they put their hands up. Um, I also peaked, so I know that they do this. Uh, and then they, they do this big chant and they, they bless the congregation. And it's, it's considered like a very awe-inspiring moment. It's actually a little surprising to me that, um, it's, it's something that's dropped in, uh, reform community. I didn't know that until I'd been to a reform synagogue on, on a holiday because of the classist nature of the entire ritual. But yeah, it, it's super important to the holiday. It's considered like an event that you'd like to be there for. And like as a little kid, you're usually you stand under your father's talit in the men's section and it's got like a an interesting uh, vibe to it. What do you make of the fact that it's like transcended this small Jewish ritual and become like a global symbol? I think that th- I wouldn't be surprised if there are people it offends, if they're like quite, quite orthodox and they see this super sacred symbol being used in something like Star Trek. But I also think that it's great. <laughs> and I love that that little bit of of Judaism made its way into into Star Trek. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I, I think that as we can talk about tonight, there's so much Jewish to think about. And and the fact that it really it would be one thing if it was appropriative, but the fact that it comes from his own experiences growing up in the it, it it makes it authentic to me. There's some other places where 
We see uh, Jewish influences in things that Nimoy brought of Yiddishkeit into Star Trek. I think they come through more in the films. Uh, you know, Star Trek has had many chefs in the kitchen. You have a film and television franchise for over uh, 50 years now. But he had a lot of influence uh, in the film franchise for the original series. Of course, he directed three and four and, and produced six. He's spoken about how he brought a certain um, Judean desert aesthetic to the depiction of, of the planet. Vulcan, which we see in, in three and four, we see in uh, in six, which he produced. And this is a really wonderful scene that I, that I think we'll come back to after that Mark Chagall's uh, expulsion from paradise. I don't know, print or original, that might be a, a risky thing to keep aboard a starship. Um, what are some other things that you think that might embody like Jewishness in Spock, the character? Well, definitely some of the the personality of Spock. So like, Spock as a, a logician, um, Spock as sort of separate from everybody else um, in specific ways. Um, and I think we could talk about that a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Could he possibly be like canonically Jewish? Yeah, what do you think? Do you think he's actually Jewish? Maybe a little. Who knows? There's it's something we've talked about a lot on our show is that Star Trek has like never really shown a Jewish character there's like a bunch of marginal cases like um the immortal flint actually having lived one of his lives as king solomon or a uh, hologram of albert einstein in next generation or haridi background actors in a time travel episode in deep space nine but we've never seen like in televised or film star trek like a jewish character walking down the hallway in a starfleet uniform that we know of except spock there's <laughs> maybe maybe Spock. There's there's a few little hints. He he does have a familiarity with um with Jewish texts. So we see that we see that like he can quote the Hebrew Bible, but we also see that Spock can quote Shakespeare and quote Greek mythology. If we go into the midrash of Star Trek, kind of the the exegesis, quasi canonical texts, there are um, a host of Jewish characters, and there are a few novels that say his human mother Amanda Grayson came from a, a partial Jewish descent. It's midrash. I think you can take from it what you want. I, I don't think there's an intention to make Spock a canonically Jewish character in Star Trek. Um, but there's so much that, that we can read into, um, especially as we think about Spock as um, as the other. There's a great line from one of my favorite episodes of the original series, Journey to Babel, which is where we meet Spock's parents for the first time. And Amanda says to Kirk, I'm glad he has such a friend. It hasn't been easy on Spock, neither human nor Vulcan, at home nowhere except Starfleet. What do you think about Spock as the Jewish other and like otherness as a Jewish concept? It's a really good question. Um, I think that recently there's been a lot of conversation around uh, whether Jews fit in with white people or not. And I think that that sort of divide there is a little bit Spockish, a little bit like how Spock is with the rest of the crew. He's like almost not quite the same as everybody else. I think that a little bit, that's that's kind of how the Jews are with the rest of society. It's a tricky area. Like Star Trek has a really problematic history when it comes to like using an alien species to depict racial and ethnic groups. And sometimes it's like very essentializing and frankly, like very colonialist. But there's like this whole conversation around 
Jews and whiteness, and many Jews are not white. And in North America, there's this interesting balance for, for Jews who are white or appear white or however you want to call it, where you benefit from, we benefit from white privilege with respect to all the ways that white privilege benefits people, housing and education, employment, access to government services, encounters with law enforcement. And yet, we know that there are like white supremacists who see us as the outsider, who, mm-hmm. who see us as not in that group, and perhaps with genocidal intent. I, I've seen the phrase conditional whiteness, and it, it's a controversial one, to be sure. It's interesting how like the Jewish community's response on this has evolved over time. Like, I don't think American Jews were like chomping at the bit to call themselves non-white in the 1950s if it meant like exclusion from federal housing programs. Right. But there's something to the fact that like, once in a while, every couple of weeks, they beam down to the planet, to a planet, and Spock just has to put on a hat to pass yeah, as human. Puts his headband on, and uh, nobody can tell he's not human, except unless you speak to him, which I think is sort of how someone would act if they started talking to me about Christmas, for example. Like, I <laughs> wouldn't know what's going on, and um, it would become quite obvious that I stand out because of that. We played a clip at the beginning, and I want to say thank you to the to the Wexler Oral History Project at the Yiddish Book Center, who've allowed us to use um, media from their incredible oral history project uh, with Leonard Nimoy. The whole two-hour interview is amazing, and it's on their website. And, and thank you, Yiddish Book Center. But there's a part in that interview where Nimoy says... And if I, if I mix up Nimoy and Spock, please stop me. It's a terrible <laughs> slip of tongue. That Spock was an alien no matter where he went. That he, among humans, he was seen as an alien. But among Vulcans, he could be seen as a human. He couldn't be accepted anywhere. This is a shot from a wonderful episode. I think the animated series is sometimes overlooked. Um, but this is like young Spock being bullied for his human half by some fully Vulcan children. And... Uh, for those who would write off the animated series, I'd point out that this episode is actually written by Dorothy Fontana, probably the writer who had like the biggest influence on the the classic Spock. And this scene is, uh, if it looks familiar, it's because it's replicated almost shot for shot in uh, the 2009 Star Trek movie, which I know is a little controversial among Trek fans. But I thought this scene was like really beautiful in like taking that piece of kind of obscure Trek history and and putting it on the big screen. So what do you think about like the dual identity that Spock carries with him and how it relates to to Jewishness? I think it's it's pretty closely connected to the question that I mean, I think we both get asked pretty often is, would you consider yourself a Jewish Canadian or a Canadian Jew? And that kind of plays into anti-Semitic tropes as well, just sort of like the idea that your loyalties are lying somewhere else, uh, the dual loyalty. But I think it's also just something that in general, anybody that is of mixed culture or race would face spending time with either of their cultures. There's a, a guy named Lex Rothberg. He hosts, uh, he's one of the co-hosts of Judaism Unbound. And I think a, a really interesting person. And he had said on Twitter that like tomorrow we're going to celebrate a Jewish hero who saved the Jewish people. It's Queen Esther. It's Purim tomorrow. And yet she would have uh, not been permitted to enter um, many denominations, rabbinical and cantoral schools today because she's married to a non-Jew. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about like how some Jewish institutions haven't kept up with the reality of what Jewry looks like today. There was a report, a report that came out of, out of the Bay Area UJA where they said 
50% of Jewish families in the Bay Area have at least one uh, non-white person in the family. And that, so that was a larger group that included Jews of color and, and people who had mixed marriages. And there were, there were lots in that. And that the reality of like a, the, what the Jewish world looks like today is multiple identities stacked into one. And that at a certain point, if you are only if you are creating Jewish communities that leave those out, you're not really serving the whole Jewish community. You're you're serving like a tiny subset of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to really remove the implicit assumption of Ashkenazi culture. Both Josh and I are Ashkenazi, so that's uh, obviously not something that we're super easy at doing on our podcast or here. But it's it's something that we should all strive for, and certainly synagogues, if they want to uh, continue to attract new members and everything they should as well. Do you think like the trope of the Jewish other is relevant today? I mean, it it comes from like such a deep place in our history, in our, in our like founding stories of being a stranger in a strange land and exile in, in Babylon and like our own identities. Like you are descended from people who came to North America as, as Holocaust survivors. And I am from people who came here fleeing pogroms. And yet, in some ways, I don't know if I feel like an outsider. What do you think? Definitely, like when I was existing as a religious Jew, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you even just walking around, like you're wearing a long skirt, you're maybe doing traditions that other people aren't doing. But yeah, so I definitely felt that way. And I do continue to feel that way. Because um, I mean, I was raised eating kosher food. I often don't know lots about cultural traditions that are outside of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a funny you? situation in Toronto where as Jews were like one of many, many different cultures, like it's not the situation where you have one minority group. And yet sure, there were yeah. times, even having grown up in like a particularly Jewish neighborhood, there were times when I felt like the outsider. I, I went to middle school far from where I had grown up and I like, I'll never forget like this, this very sweet she had no malice in her whatsoever, like 11-year-old asking me if I had horns at Keel and Eglinton, like not so far from where we live. I think that's present and it's not distinct to, to Jews anymore. Like there's so many peoples throughout the world that have a diaspora that feel like an alien wherever they go. I, I know like so many people who are LGBTQ plus and maybe like were in the closet longer than they wanted to be because of family situations have said that Spock resonates with them because of his like status as the outsider. And because, you know, the clip that we just watched from Amok Time, like, you know, Spock has to the urge to mate or die. But then after he rolls around with uh, Kirk for a little bit in the dirt, he's all good. <laughs> so maybe there's different reasons there, too. I also think that um, Spock is like, not only is his appearance different, but because his mannerisms are so different, he he is the other in a lot of different ways. Um, and mm-hmm. that really can relate to a lot of people. Like, there are other aliens on Star Trek that are quite a bit more human, I would say. Like, in the, in the new Star Trek Discovery series, there's Saru, and I think he's very human. I can hardly tell the difference between him and... Um, and the human characters, except that he's very obviously an alien. Oh, or, yeah, or Neelix even um, from Star, uh, Star Trek Voyager. Also seems very, very human and much more human than the Vulcan character on the show in mannerisms, even though they they look much more alien. It's funny how Star Trek will play with the mask. Like they'll make it 
heavier or lighter to use physical differences to to show how alien they want to make a character like famously um christopher Plummer, who who just passed away very recently when he played general chang in star trek 6 he he asked them to like do the ridges as minimal as possible because he wanted to be this like shakespearean character and really like have a pathos to him and so they made his alien character less alien than than maybe something like star trek discovery which put the klingons in the full prosthetic and the fangs and the claws and i think it's interesting how they can play with a visual medium there to like send different cues to the audience yeah so i know that we think a lot about vulcan logic and rabbinic thought that's something that we kind of do on our show is uh connect star trek with rabbinic thought and sort of think about star trek uh the way rabbis would think about jewish texts like what even is vulcan logic right i almost feel like star trek has taken over the word logic and given it a new meaning that is in the culture and it's in our understanding of the word can't get rid of it now but i don't know that like vulcan logic always has a consistent philosophy and it doesn't seem to have a lot of similarities with like i don't think that plato or immanuel kant would would look at what the the total lack of emotion and say that that is about a system of you know rules and inferences that how they understood logic so maybe Vulcan logic is more like um like a personal practice. It's like a like a musar. You know, you have this emotional suppression. You have a um a deference to tradition, which you which doesn't really gel well with like a system of rules and inferences for for guiding your life. And yet, like we saw in Spock's uh, betrothal scene in Amok Time at, at the beginning, that's so much of what the Vulcans are. What do you think? I think that Vulcans are logic-based, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're based on the scientific method. And that's something that I think Star Trek kind of confuses and Spock does as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because you can't really logic your way through an experiment. And certainly, I think that you could you could come up with very many different logical conclusions based on a specific set of axioms that you come up with. I think that those differences are often related to emotion, even though Spock pretends that they're not. Yeah. And I think actually that the Talmud is very similar that way. There are many different logical conclusions from different rabbis and scholars, but ultimately there's no one truth or correct way that's decided by like any fact confirming authority. Um, Mm. So I think that's kind of similar actually to the Spock logic because it can be influenced very much by a Vulcan's own truths and their own like ideas of morality. I like to say that there's, there are actually like two species in Star Trek that are driven only by like a heuristic system of inferences. And one is the Vulcans and the other is the Borg. And for those of you not familiar with like 90s, 2000s Trek, the Borg are this like zombie-like cybernetic species that want to go forcibly assimilate other cultures into their own by physically making them into cyborgs as well, like a menacing threat throughout the galaxy. And the difference between the Vulcans and the Borg, it's very Aristotelian. It's like truth and beauty in that, like Spock is almost like like Maimonides. <laughs> he He sees like how Maimonides would have thought of Torah and medicine and astronomy and poetry, all as facets of the search for truth. I, I think that Spock is on that that kind of journey as well. We'd shown that uh, picture of the Chagall painting with actually Kim Cattrall, it was her film debut in the, the slide earlier. And Spock says in that scene, like, 
logic is the beginning of all things and not the end. And I think it's an interesting approach to take. I've seen a lot of people draw like a connection from the like logic of Vulcans to kind of a stereotyped legalism of Judaism, but I don't really think yeah. it it holds up. Like the the idea of Judaism as this like legalistic and antiquated religion is something that has like come from a lot of places as like a Christian critique of Judaism, um, but also internally as like a Hasidic critique of the Mitnagdim in like the 17th century religious conflicts in Eastern Europe or an early reform critique of like what we would now call Orthodox, but there was no Orthodox at the time. And I don't think it fully holds up. Like, I think that if we look into Jewish texts, like in the Talmud, the rabbis are more concerned with chesed, loving kindness and tzedek righteousness than they are with like technical compliance with the law. They clearly think those are more important than the heuristic rule following. And yet, it, you can't like write a whole order of the Mishnah on loving kindness. <laughs> At least I, I don't think you can. Maybe I shouldn't discount what they can do in the same way that you, you could, you know, drone on for, for hundreds and hundreds of pages about the legal fiction of offense surrounding the community that lets you walk with a thing outside a certain day of the week. The and so like the logic gets applied there, um, but maybe not, maybe not as a whole system. <laughs> what do you think? I think that definitely the two types of thinking coincide. Like Spock is the science officer, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that there's a good reason for that. Uh, it's a way of thinking that is, I do think, very Jewish, like thinking through the the logical um, flow of of a specific scenario and analyzing the Torah as such. Somebody threw in the chat that like, yet there's also a stereotype of the overly emotional Jew. And that's so true. And it's a trope that I think that Star Trek has unfortunately employed in some kind of nasty ways. We had a very long conversation months ago um, with Professor Jonathan Brampman. He's a, a, a media studies prof at Cornell. And we talked about how like pretty like pernicious depictions, especially of like Jewish women and like really like gendered tropes and like the nice Jewish boy and the, the nagging Jewish mother that like we he kind of traced the roots of those all the way through history to the Middle Ages with us and, and talked to us about ways that shows up in Star Trek. And I, I think it's such an interesting point. And I also think it's worth pointing out that Star Trek isn't over. <laughs> and Torah is an Etz Chaim, a living tree. And we're always kept on our toes because it's always going in new directions. There are new Jewish trends for us to think of and new Star Trek for us to think of not too far from where we live. They are in day three of production on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And we will have a new interpretation of of Spock and who he is and, and what he brings played by, by Ethan Peck in this incarnation and a new team of writers. So I'm really excited for that. Me too. Thank you both so much. That was fantastic. So just a quick reminder for those of you joining us on Facebook. So I think, um, okay, let's start with one of the questions that I did sort of see bubble up in a couple of different places, which was about Worf's foster parents as an example of Jewish characters in Star Trek. I wonder if you can talk to that a little bit, please. They're really coded Jewish. But, yeah. Uh... So Warp's parents are played by like famed Yiddish actors, including Theodore Bissell, who was like Tevya in the in Fiddler on Broadway for many years. They came so close to making them Jewish. It was in it was in an early version of 
that's um oh it's a great episode where we meet them it's right when picard's come out of the borg and you know he punches his brother in the mud in paris and they pulled it out michael pillar who was the showrunner at the time thought it would make them too cartoony and i i don't know what to make of that exactly i only know the quote out of context because the quote is in um larry nambachek's star trek companion mandium but they feel very Jewish, and like it's, it seems very believable to me that, like in my head canon, Worf's adoptive parents were Jewish. But I will say this about them: I don't think Worf is Jewish, and the reason is because there's a line from Worf's mother where she talks about the efforts that they went to 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 immerse Worf in Klingon culture, learning the learning how to make blood something, and sending him to live with his cousins for periods. And I think like. Cross-cultural adoption is full of landmines, and that's something the Jewish community has experienced. Like here in Canada, we have a, a lot of controversy, for example, of like Jewish families that were involved in in the 60s scoop and um, like erasure of indigenous identities through that. And so like I applaud Worf's potentially Jewish parents for going out of their way to keep Worf in his culture. But I, I love the Rojankos, and, that, and that's such a great episode. Um, okay, so we got one question very early on, so I hope I'm getting this right. Um, somebody asked, um, wanted to know, so that Roddenberry had um, asked Leonard Nimoy for his input and, you know, the sort of bringing in of this. Um, and so they asked, you know, how involved is the cast in the sort of direction of Star Trek and the sort of maybe even like evolution of their characters and whatnot? Was this sort of something that was really out of character or actually was that sort of what the sort of creative work-life balance there looked like at that time? I don't know. I, I don't know enough about the 60s production to say how involved cast were, except that we know that in this case, he said, let's do it. And they did it. As we mentioned, like in the films, Nimoy had a much bigger role because he was a director and, and then producer. Um, I should say also on Roddenberry, Amok Time is season two. So Roddenberry's already less involved in kind of day-to-day production. And then in three, by season three, he's like mostly out of the picture. Um, I think that there are many different histories that have emerged in, in books like These Are the Voyages, sort of like oral histories of Star Trek about how much of Roddenberry's participation in Star Trek has been exaggerated over time, although he certainly came up with the idea. And there's a lot of different chefs in a pot. So definitely a lot comes from Nimoy. I think um, Dorothy Fontana, who was like today, we would probably call her like the the story editor or something like that. But she basically was in charge of keeping like the early continuity and wrote a lot of the Spock heavy episodes has, has a lot in that. So, you know, film's collaborative. Thank you. So question here. The concept of miracles, mysticism, etc., is dispelled by Zachary Quinto's Spock in the second new Star Trek movie when he says there are no such things as miracles. Do you think that line was included for more reasons to, than to move action and to accent Spock's logic? I think it's trying to tie very closely together the logic and science of, of Spock. The, I, I have some bones to pick with the J.J. The Abrams films, but I, but I think um, Zachary Quinto's depiction and that, that iteration of Spock is not one of them. It feels pretty authentic to me. I think that it feels appropriate for like the Spock at that point in his life of like the, the young Spock who still thinks he might be a culinary master one day, had, had it down that path for logic and, and hasn't had 
the experience that like maybe the prime Spock has of like dying and seeing his friends give up everything to make a new one of him and seeing that there is a world beyond logic. So it's an interesting one. I'm not sure how much intentionality there is there, but that's a good one to think about. Thank you. Could you please speak to the relationship of the prime directive um, non-interference with Hillel's version of the golden rule, do not do unto others. So the prime directive is Starfleet's general order one, maybe depending on who you ask. And there's two facets to it. One is that you can't interfere in undeveloped worlds, even make them known of you. And the line is usually whether or not they have discovered faster than light travel. And the second is that you cannot interfere in others' uh, affairs. Hillel's golden rule is um, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to to others. What do you think, Hava? I think that the prime directive is a little bit I don't know. I don't really like the Prime Directive. I think that they only bring it up when they want to not help out someone that is like a species that's on another planet that needs help that is not as developed as they are. So I I don't really see them as comparable, I, I guess. I think of the Hillel saying really more as like, you should just be kind to other people. And whereas the, the Prime Directive, I don't really see it that way. It inhibits kindness sometimes. It really does. It often does um, inhibit kindness, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a comment in the chat that it was a response to U.S. Cold War foreign policy in Vietnam, and I think broadly to colonialism, definitely true. However, it's a really good point that like they usually talk about the prime directive when there's a situation where they maybe really want to break it. Yeah. And I think that's where it's more like um, rabbinic thought in that it's not really about the precise rule of the prime directive. It exists in the story to say, like, these characters live by a code and they live by a set of rules that they're sworn to defend. And that's like their whole way of life is oriented around that. And what do they do when like an ethical dilemma presents itself that forces them to deviate from that code? And I think that is like a really <laughs> Jewish uh, set of questions to think about. How do you navigate all of the complications? And we could go on for hours about that. But yeah, living by code more than like the actual similarities between the two rules. So many questions. Um, okay, let's do, could you please talk a little bit about the explicitly Jewish characters in the novels, such as Captain Gold and his wife, David the Gold. rabbi? Yeah, I I have hardly any familiarity with the novels, but on my bookshelf right now is um, the Starfleet Corps of Engineers books because we are going to... <laughs> learn about them and do an episode on them in the summer, uh, probably in like July or August. So I don't know anything about David Gold, except that there is um, a short story where he's trying to make a decision, but he's fasting and it's Yom Kippur. And it's, I guess he's like trying to problem solve an intergalactic crisis while hangry. And another one where his, yeah, his wife is officiating at their daughter's Klingon Jewish wedding. So I'm really excited to read those. There's a lot of, of like explicitly Jewish characters in the novels, comics, video games. Um, and I don't know a lot about them. So yeah, I got to learn more. Somebody in the chat says the novels are not canon. Canon Schmanon, Star Trek is Star Trek. And um, we take an expansive view if everything that is Star Trek is interesting to us in the same way that we talk about the fan experiences and the same way we'll talk about conventions and the, the history of fan fiction. Yeah. It's, it's not like thought of as canonical within the text, but we take a, a broader approach. 
Okay, I think these are technically getting at the same thing. Um, so I think, and I apologize if I'm really, really wrong. Wasn't there a guy in Deep Space Nine that had every negative Jewish sort of stereotypical body part? Can you guys maybe talk a little to that character, please? Um, and his sort of place in the Star Trek. Are we allowed to say Star Trek universe? Um, sure. We could talk about that for a full hour and recently <laughs> did so. So we have an episode <laughs> on on the Frangi. Um, the short answer, if I had to, if I had to give my on one foot answer like Hillel, is that there are deep seated anti Jewish tropes that are embedded in lots of places in our media. They definitely come through in the Ferengi, and yet we can still find a way to like love the Ferengi characters, especially in Deep Space Nine, where they are like just beautifully portrayed by an almost all Jewish cast. And that instead of giant ears and noses, Gene Ronberry originally wanted the Ferengi to have giant dongs. Fantastic. Oh, no, I'm not sure if we can end on that one. <laughs> I do think that actually a lot of a lot of minority groups see that in uh, in the Ferengi as well, though, and it's not just Jewish people that they they sort of see the negative traits that uh, that are attributed to them by white supremacy, basically. Armin Shimmerman had said at a convention once that, like in Australia, he gets asked if they're Chinese, and in in England, he gets asked if they're Scottish, and in America, he gets asked if they're Jewish. And yet, I don't think you can divorce the depiction of the Ferengi from like some really deep seated anti Semitic tropes. Yeah. Um, and I also think that like the defense that oh they're a, they're really a critique of capitalism. They're not really a very good critique no. of capitalism. Like they're actually they're more like a used car salesman than yeah. than like um ex- expansive capitalist success and oppression from that. So um yeah, there's some problems really there. I, pretty offensive, definitely. Though they're interesting in that they're like very rules based too. We could go on and on and on about the Ferengi. Well, let's, um, we should, we should wrap it up, uh, recognizing we're, we're gradually going over time. So thank you so much uh, for joining us this evening. Yeah, I'd just like to take a moment to thank everyone that's been involved in the program today. Robert, Laura, and our captioner, Joe Gale. But, but especially, um, I'd like to say thank you so much to Josh and Harvard for joining us and for all of you for joining us this evening at our virtual JMM. So thank you very much. Um, and I very much hope that we'll see you all again very, very soon. Thank you and have a good evening. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Trillian, and, and thanks to everyone for coming. We love doing this stuff. So yes. we're really happy to be able to share with all of you tonight. <laughs> that's brilliant. Someone said so- live long and prosper, and that's very accurate. <laughs> that seems the perfect way to end, indeed. Yes, live long and prosper. <laughs>Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Star Trek and the Jews. A reminder that our call to action for this episode is for listeners to consider donating to Jaius Toronto to support their efforts to welcome and assist refugees and immigrants. There's a link in the show notes. Thank you again to the Jewish Museum of Maryland for hosting us last February. This year they put together a really incredible exhibit as part of their Jews in Space series, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. The opening music today was Avinu Malkenu, adapted and arranged by Benjamin Allenbeck as part of the Chag Sameach Remixes project. Your Hebrew School homework is the original series episode Pattern the Force, which is Season 2, Episode 21, and Enterprise Stormfront Parts 1 and 2, uh, the episodes that open the fourth season. And spoiler alert, I'm both excited and super nervous for that episode because our guest is going to be my partner, Leah. Bye. Uh, Gamar Tov, everyone. Be well.
How does it work? Quite simple. Off, on switches, and the large control here changes the strength of the brain neutralizing beam. Captain, you remind me of the, the ancient skeptic who demanded of the wise old sage to be taught all the world's wisdom while standing on one foot. 